Well, I mentioned last Sunday that we were going to be taking a break from our normal Roman series, and instead what we're going to be doing is looking at a psalm each week. And I've decided to do that for several reasons. You've probably noticed a lot of pastors have been turning to the psalms, and one of the reasons we do that is because throughout church history, the psalms have really been one of the places that the church has gone to in times of need. Uh, It's also the place that Christians have gone to as a way of preparing themselves for challenges that might lie ahead. We do that because the Psalms, one way of thinking of them is sort of a a cataloging of the human experience. The Psalms capture everything that you could possibly experience as a human and attempts through prayer to relate those things to God, to take them to him and to see how God transforms those human experiences, those emotions. So it makes sense why given times of experiencing new situations, new responses and emotions to it, that the Psalms for the church in the past and today have really been one of the tools we turn to for help. I was reading this week Jack Collins' introduction to the Psalms, and he writes this. He says, the Psalter is the songbook of the people of God in their gathered worship. These songs cover a wide range of experiences and emotions and give God's people the words to express these emotions and to bring these experiences before God. At the same time, The Psalms do not simply express emotions. When sung in faith, they actually shape the emotions of the godly. The emotions are therefore not a problem to be solved, but are part of the raw material of now fallen humanity that can be shaped to good and noble ends. The Psalms as songs act deeply on the emotions for the good of God's people. It is not natural to trust, to trust God in hardship, and yet the Psalms provide a way of doing just that. So you can probably see why I think it will be helpful over the next few weeks to spend some of our time in the Psalms, to do exactly what they've done for believers before, to help shape and grow and change what we're feeling and experience our emotions into something God can use for good. Um, N.T. Wright has a little book on the Psalms entitled The Case for the Psalms, and he says something similar. He uses the topic of worldview and talks about how the Psalms have been used as a tool to shape the Christian worldview. He writes this, A worldview is like a pair of spectacles. It is what you look through, not what you look at. I think that's a good way of thinking about what the Psalms do for us. They become the lens that we look at the world by. The language of the Psalms and the ways in which the Psalms teach us to pray begin to shape and change the way we see the world and we understand our position in it. So hopefully over the next few weeks, that's what the Psalms are going to do for us. And today what I want to do is I want to look at Psalm 56, Psalm 56. And as you're turning there, there are a couple things I want to do before we read the Psalm. Um, first, I want to say why I think this is important for the moment and to sort of the context this psalm is coming from. And the reason it's been on my heart, particularly this psalm, is you, you sort of see people right now responding to our crisis in a couple of ways, maybe these two ends of the spectrum. On the one side, what you find are people, I think pretty obviously in news headlines, operating out of fear and a kind of hoarding mentality. And the idea is that uh, there's nothing out there to trust. There's nobody we can depend on. And so the fear that wells up in us means that we need to hoard and protect ourselves and act out of our own benefit. We sort of indulge the fear because the fear is the only thing that moves us towards protecting ourselves. Now, most Christians, I think, understand that uh, a world in which only fear and only self can be trusted is not a world in which God exists and the authority of God. And as believers, we know there's something beyond just what we're feeling. But the opposite end of this spectrum that I keep seeing tends to be, in some ways, Christian's response. And if you 
you go through your social media accounts and look, one of the themes I see keep emerging is this sense that Christians are above fear, that somehow because of our faith or our trust in God, that we don't experience fear. And, and I think I understand what most Christians are trying to say, but I, I think sometimes it can come across almost as if we live on a plane or reality above what the world is experiencing, that somehow for a person of real faith, deep faith, significant faith, that fear is not a part of that human experience, that we've somehow risen above it. Uh, what's surprising is the Bible doesn't approach fear or emotions in either of those ways. It certainly doesn't teach us to indulge it, but at the exact same time, it doesn't expect that somehow when we're baptized and brought up out of the waters that we're born into sort of an emotionless human experience of only positivity. Uh, what's so surprising about the Psalms is the way it is brutally honest about some of the things we experience as humans, including fear. And that's at the heart of Psalm 56. Now, if you look at the headline for Psalm 56, my ESV Bible refers to it as a Psalm of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, if you were with us when we worked through First and Second Samuel, you might remember a little bit of this story. This psalm was written at a time when David was on the run from Saul. Saul had uh, basically determined to kill David, and David had realized there was no chance for him to stay in Israel, Jerusalem. And of course, it's the poignant scene in which he realizes accurately that he would be saying goodbye to his friend Jonathan, who he wouldn't see again, and David would flee alone into the wilderness, which I'm trying really hard not to make any sort of corn quarantine jokes, not probably the right moment for that. But David is in a situation not that different, terrified, not knowing what to do, desperate, alone, uh, not knowing where to look for answers or what lies in the future ahead of him. And he starts making some really poor choices in the midst of that fear. He goes to the priest Ahimelech and he tries to lie and manipulate in order to get a weapon. And then he does maybe the most unexpected of David things. He flees to the Philistine city of Gath, which is actually the hometown of Goliath. Now, that seems like a strange thing to do. Maybe it was that David assumed if they were the enemies of Saul, then maybe now that he was the enemy of Saul, that they would shelter him or protect him or take him in. But the plan does not work the way that David may in his fear and desperation have hoped that it would. First Samuel 21 tells us that day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. In other words, they're saying, isn't this uh, David an even worse enemy, a greater enemy than Saul? David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David, in the story, actually ended up pretending to be insane. The king decided he needed not uh, any more madmen to have to deal with and kicked David out of the city back into the wilderness, which ended up saving him. But it's a strange picture of David. I mean, David, after all, was the, the young man who stepped onto the battlefield with Goliath when no one else had the courage to do it. I mean, if there was anything by which we would characterize David, it would be his courage, his boldness, his fearlessness to face the, the giant Goliath. But now we find David, ironically, in the city of Gath, Goliath's hometown. And the thing which characterizes him, the Bible tells us, is the great fear that he was feeling. So it's uh, in this season, in this particular situation, that David writes Psalm 56 that I want to read to you. This is how it goes. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. 
My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the people, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid, for what can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So what I want to do with this psalm this morning is break it down into a few of these sections. Um, The ESV, I think, does a pretty good job by the way it does the paragraph breaks. And so I want to show you the four sections in this psalm and what I think we see in them. Um, The first one is this, verses 1 through 4. I'm reminded in the beginning, as I am in so many of David's psalms, at how honest David can be in these psalms. I mean, you see it so clearly here at the very beginning. Verse 3, when I am afraid... David makes no attempt to hide the fact that fear is a part of his experience when I am afraid. This isn't a a one-off thing that David finds himself in the midst of. It's something David understands is happening and probably is a part of his experience to come in the future. It's always struck me that David doesn't have any attempt to whitewash the experience that he's having in this isolation. He's willing to admit fear and to write it into the Psalms that thousands of years later, we're still sitting around living rooms talking about and experiencing ourselves. In fact, David can acknowledge that fear is actually what brings him to prayer. He writes Psalm 56 because when I am afraid, when he is in the midst of this fearful experience. Now, that doesn't mean that he indulges in fear. Um, It's here. It's obvious. It's the thing that brings him to prayer, and he's frank about it. But there's so much more that he does in the psalm than just indulge that emotion that he's feeling. He moves on to the next thing, verse 5 through 7. Let's look at it. All day long they injure my cause. Verse 6, they stir up strife. They lurk. Verse 7, their crime, for their crime will they escape. And then the important part, the second half of verse 7, in wrath cast down the people, O God. Um, What I want you to see David doing in this psalm is not just being honest about what he's feeling, but his boldness to make a request, to have a sense of what he thinks God should do and to ask for it. And it's actually a pretty frank thing. He says, In wrath, God, pour your wrath and tear the people down who have come against me. Um, This is the other thing David is always remarkably honest about. He's bold in what he asks. There's, There's another psalm where David actually asks that God will knock out the teeth of those who oppose him. Um, David is not trying to be pious. He's not trying to put in place some secret words of of saintly prayer that'll move God on his behalf. He's willing to be blunt with God about what he's feeling when I'm afraid. And he's willing to ask and talk about the actual situation he faces. Here's what I'm up against. And God, here's what I would like to see you do in the midst of it. 
Now, having sort of established that honesty, here's where I am, here's what I would like to see happen. David has a whole second half of the psalm still to come. Um, this is when we pray honestly, sort of what our prayers look like. Here's where I am, here's what I'd like to happen. But David has a second half to this psalm, this prayer that he offers to us as an example. The second half of it picks up then in uh, verse 8. And what you see David do in this second half is something really remarkable. God has seen and understood and counted everything that David has experienced. I mean, do you see the language? You keep count of my tossing, verse 8. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all written down in your book? Now, David is doing something remarkable, and he, he does the, the sort of culminating conclusion of it in the second half of verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. What David's doing in this third section is he's preaching to himself. He's going through and reminding himself of what he knows, what a lifetime of following God has produced in him. Don't I know that you've been faithful to me before? Haven't I seen how you keep track of everything that's happened in my life? Are not all of my tossings and my insecurities and my anxieties, are they not recorded? Do you not see them? Have you not collected all of that pain and those tears? And if I've trusted you before, then I can trust you now. I've seen how you've been for me. So even now, in the midst of fear, with this desperate need to put an end to what I'm facing, I know that still I can trust you. So then David does one last thing in this prayer. Uh, it begins in verse 12. He makes a vow. Those are his words. I must perform my vow to you, O God. And what is his vow? That he would offer offerings of thanks. Um, it strikes me how much it's like what we've been talking about in Romans, that David would provide gratitude and thankfulness to God as an act of commitment, of vow. That's the closing thought of his psalm. In midst of everything that has been happening, what he would like to see, what he's experiencing, the way he's reminding himself of what he knows, his final and most fundamental commitment is even in the midst of this fear to be grateful to God. And there's a reason he says for it. It's the final verse, the second half that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, here's that idea of worldview that N.T. Wright was talking about. I would walk in the light of life, that I would begin, because of this psalm, to see the world by a new light, that the thing that would characterize what's before me and around me that I'm experiencing would not fundamentally be fear or my situation, but would be life. For David, it was a matter of life and death. But by this prayer, he's come to see that it's life that allows him to recognize what God is doing and be grateful for it. The light of what God is doing that gives to him a new way, a new lens by which to see his circumstance. Um, it reminds me of a famous C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's what this psalm is teaching us to do, to take inventory of what we're feeling, to be honest about it before God. And then through prayer, through this psalm, to see the world through a new lens, to remind ourselves that we know God has been good. And so even now we can see this situation through that lens, the light of life. 
Now, this has been my prayer for this psalm, that it would be for us a kind of model for how we might pray this week and really in the weeks to come. Um, I sort of broke it down, as the ESV did, into four sections. And I think those four sections are a helpful way of thinking about the psalm. And I want to give them to you in sort of one word so that you can maybe use them as a template for your own praying and as we will in a moment. So those four words are this first section, confess. Come to God with bare honesty about what you're feeling and all of the emotions that you're experiencing. Confess those things to God. And then number two, make a request. Uh, We're told in the Bible, we have not because we ask not. And the Psalms teach us, they model for us a willingness and honesty to ask God for the things we would like to see him do. But then the Psalm continues, confession, request, remind, preach to yourself. Use the Psalm as a tool to do it. Watch David remind himself of how God has been good to him and reflect on the ways God has been faithful to you. God has saved you. God has justified you. God has reconciled you. Think of all the times that God has proved that he was for you and not against you. And then by that, use that lens, this fourth step to make a commitment, a vow that I will be grateful, that I will give thanks to him, that I will worship him even in the midst of suffering. I was reminded this week, um, there's quite a bit of debate about what Jesus was feeling when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer. But one of the things everyone agrees on, it's in the text, is that he was under deep anguish and, and agony, that he was literally moved to the point of sweating drops of blood. I was looking at that passage in Luke and looking at Jesus's prayer there, and I was struck by how much Jesus's prayer and his actions model this little Psalm 56 example, those four sections that we worked through. Luke records this about Jesus's prayer. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What struck me is that Jesus does exactly what David did in this moment. He came in with honesty. He understood the gravity of the situation and his anguish. He knew what it was incarnated in the flesh to bear all of the human experience and in my view to understand the horror of what awaited him the full reality of it which he brings to prayer and then to make his request if there is any way possible let this cup pass from me if there is another way to do this god do it but his prayer doesn't end there like david's he reminds himself not my will be done but yours He had been sent to do the will of the Father, and he holds on to it in this moment, and he makes a commitment. As the story goes in Luke, he stands and sees Judas and the guards approaching, and he willingly goes with them, knowing what lie ahead of him, faithful and obedient in his commitment. What we need right now is not super Christians who by faith have no experience of fear, have somehow risen above it onto another plane of existence where nothing that happens around them in this situation can bring them down. What we need are Christians who know how to pray like David and like Jesus, who bear with the world, incarnate, with us, in flesh, the pain and the suffering and the difficulty of these moments. But yet, as David teaches us to do, can take those human emotions, those desperate requests, and can see them through the lens of God's faithfulness and his goodness, and so by it, in the midst of it, 
thank him and trust him and worship him. I hope over the weeks this this little model prayer could be our way of doing that along with Christ, along with David, and along with a history of believers over thousands of years who have found themselves in equally challenging situations and done just that. Confessed what they were feeling, the true honesty of it, made their request, reminded themselves of the God they follow, and committed more deeply to faithfulness and obedience to him. Could we end with that prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you with that request. God, we are in the midst of a difficult time, and we see signs of people all around us, scared, anxious, and unsure. If we were honest, God, all of us experience it too. We know what it is to be uncertain about the future and to feel anxiety over our finances and to worry about the health of people we love. God, we are afraid. And we come to you with bold requests that you would protect us, that you would put an end to this virus, that you would save us and those that we care most about. And God, even those who are most vulnerable and suffering around us, that they would be protected. And yet we also remind ourselves that you are a good God, that you prayed that prayer in the garden, that you would take on flesh and die, not when we were praying and asking for it, but while we were in rebellion against you. That if you would die for us, then how much more would you do for us even now in the midst of this need? You have been faithful to us before, and so we make a commitment to you this morning that we will be faithful as well. To trust you, to worship you, to give thanks to you, and in the midst of difficulty, God, to believe by hope, to see by this new light of your gospel that there is life even where death exists, that you, by the power of your resurrection, have emptied death of its sting and are doing something new even as we struggle to see it. God, teach us by your Holy Spirit to pray these things in deeper ways this week. Let this psalm be a model for us, not just in the way we pray, but in the way we live, the way we encourage neighbors, that we wouldn't be naive to suffering, but that we would with honesty bear it and see it transformed by the hope we have in you, by this model, this prayer, that we might be people of even greater faith, not naive to this moment, but in the full reality of it, trusting still deeper in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.